to continue on talking about human behavior. So this is part two of a video that we're reviewing from Robert Sapolsky. And so he's a biologist and he has this premise that human beings don't have any free will. And so he gives this big hour long lecture about human behavior and why he has this supposition that he does. And I want to mention something that I did not mention last week because I just ran upon this during the week. There is a great video. Andrew Uberman, who I've mentioned before, does a podcast and he has a guest. Her name is Anna Limke. She's a psychiatrist. You can find this on YouTube. She's talking all about dopamine. So if people are interested in dopamine, getting kind of a deeper education, that podcast is great. She also wrote a book, which I just started reading. It's called Dopamine Nation. Mm -hmm. And I would recommend that uh, to people if they're interested in dopamine. Yeah. So I think we're ready to jump right into neuroplasticity. This is the idea that our brains are plastic. They're moldable, that they change over time. And so here's my, I guess, opinion on this. I think the older you get, the less plastic your brain becomes? Well, that's true. Okay. I mean, we know, we know that. So the age that we hit on, I don't know where this age comes from is that age 25 is when it starts to slow down. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, from birth until about age 25, your brain is really plastic. Now, if you were to talk to someone about brain plasticity about 20 years ago, Mm -hmm. they would say that our brain is not, or when we get older is not plastic. Okay. So really what happened is it's changed. The idea has changed that our brain remains plastic throughout the lifespan, but you're, you're right, not to the same degree as when you're 15. Mm-hmm. So and I don't know if we call it slowing down. I think what it is, is it just becomes harder to make those connections. That's why, for instance, language, you know, people say, well, if you want a second language, learn it while you're young. Yes, it's so much easier. And other countries are definitely a testament to that. I think we're one of Mm -hmm. the few countries in the world that does not start teaching kids a second language in like elementary school. And so that's why, you know, most few Americans are bilingual Mm -hmm. um, or can even speak even somewhat of a second language is because we don't start it until our freshman year of high school. And it's so, so much harder. I mean, I remember taking German in high school and I can remember how to say Sprechen Sie Deutsch, like <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's about it. We'll see. I've traveled there. My favorite are Eingingen Ausfahrt, which yeah. is entrance and exit. Or, and, yep. or exit yeah. and I know. I know. I just love that. Well, Eingingen German is, Ausfahrt. I know it's, it's a fun language. Like it just, and everything just sounds very intense. Hard right? and intense. Yes, it's a very harsh language and the words are just really fun. In, in German. So you bring a good, a good point about language is that, so language, the, the way we use words, whether it's in English or a second language, really impacts the way we think. Yes. Which then impacts the way we behave. And so I think that language is a pretty good example. And so he talks about adolescence. And the interesting thing about adolescence, we've all been through adolescence, so we know this. So the dopamine system, which we talked about, is running at full blast from about age 11 on. Mm -hmm. And But the frontal cortex, which is the thing that's going to try and regulate, you know, the choices we make, is not fully formed until about age 25. And so what happens is teens have that impulse control problem, which... Mm -hmm. 
I don't know if I remember it for myself. I don't know. Did you experience that? I certainly know my kids did. I can remember my kids' experience with impulse control. I feel like I had a pretty good handle on impulse control, but I certainly watched my brothers not do so well with, with impulse control. I mean, and so I don't know. I think I, I remember watching people before me make mistakes and thinking mm-hmm. I should not do that. Yeah. And so I also lived a very sheltered life and I was fine with it. I totally had a reputation in high school for being the goody two shoes. And that did not mm-hmm. bother me one bit. I was perfectly happy with, with my sheltered yeah, high school well, life. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. I remember yeah. my, my youngest son who had the benefit of seeing three older siblings drive yep. cars. He gets in the car and he goes down four South in Salt Lake. And for some reason he thinks it's a good idea to try and cross the median. And he's a smart kid. And if he would have mm-hmm. thought about it, he would have thought, you know, this is a Subaru. It's pretty low. It's not going to make it across that median. Yeah. And in fact, it did not make it across yeah. that median. <laughs> so yes. He had that impulsive decision for whatever reason that he wanted to turn around and go the other way. And the quickest way to do it was to drive over the median. So that's an impulsive action. Okay. And I guess that I do remember, like, I do remember I was not always good at thinking things through. Like I would do something like, oh, that did not turn out the way I wanted it to. I remember doing a lot of that. Okay, well, that's, I think that's the same thing. Okay. I think maybe we think of Im- impulsive behavior a lot in terms, say, of sexual behavior, which it yep. is. and Or drugs, drug alcohol. Use, drug, drug and alcohol use, but it doesn't have to be that. Yeah. Um, it, it can certainly be other things because I think that frontal cortex is not fully formed. And yes. so teens don't make good choices. And I don't know that we should expect them to. I look back and wonder <laughs> why in the world anybody gave me a driver's license. Right. And I was and I was not a reckless driver. I was just a terrified driver. I was very, very nervous. But I mean, I seriously, I often wonder why in the heck are we giving these 16-year-olds the ability to drive these cars? And I also wonder why sometimes how teenagers make it out of the teenage years because- well, I, I can tell you that. Your oldest is how old? She's nine. Okay, so she's got, what, seven more years. In yeah. seven years, you're going to be tired of driving her around. And so you're yeah, going to get, that. get your driver's license so you can drive around. I think it's for the convenience of parents. But if we go back to neuroplasticity, and I think we talked about this last week, but the brain is formed or those neurons are formed based on experience, mm-hmm. on behavior and experience. And so those experiences that we have as children and as adolescents are pretty important because they're forming those connections. Yes. And sometimes those connections that we form, those experiences, the way we see the world, the way we experienced our family growing up can have profound effects on our behavior when we get older. Mm -hmm. And again, people who end up in my office in therapy and individuals and couples will always go to that because- There's, I would say this, this is a global statement. There's always a reason we behave the way we do. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that can be helpful in changing maladaptive behaviors is to have some insight into where they come from. And I also think it's pretty helpful to understand that it's all about the brain. Yes. It's the choices we make are often influenced by, you know, these other factors, which is the reason we're doing this particular episode. Yes. So Robert Sapolsky, he said a couple of interesting things. He said late adolescent and early childhood is when environment is going to have its biggest effect on what kind of frontal cortex you're going to have as an adult. So 
he follows that up by saying the frontal cortex is the part of the brain least shaped by your genes and more shaped by your environment. Yeah. You know, and as I think about it, that makes so much sense to me. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense as to why culture and traditions are so important to us because we grow up knowing a certain thing and those are formative years. It also makes sense why it can be so hard for trauma victims because when you have trauma in those early, those very formative years, that's cemented a little bit into your prefrontal cortex. And it often can take a jackhammer to uncement those connections that you formed. Right. And so it it causes a lot of issues, you know, trauma and childhood, which is the next area that we wanted to get into. And he he talks about childhood and trauma in terms of genetics and what he calls epigenetics, which I'll explain in just a minute. But I think it's important for listeners to understand that, that our frontal lobe is the part of the brain that is least affected, say, by, you know, genetics and more affected by experience and environment. And so what happens is, let's say you grow up in a home where you're neglected and it's it's hard to trust your parents. Then you grow up to be a person who it's hard to trust in an intimate relationship. And it causes all sorts of issues that I think people can work through Yes. Because we, you know, because of that idea that the brain remains plastic through the lifespan, and so you can change those uh, particular neurons and those connections. It's harder though, and mm-hmm. it and it takes more time. Yeah. And so yeah, the experiences that we have as children and adolescents really do affect us as adults. A lot of people don't like to to believe that or think that. It's kind of the opposite of what Sapolsky's talking about when he says we have no free will. I think there are people who say that we have total control and my brain is the thing that's that's mm-hmm. choosing my behavior and I'm not influenced by anything else. I think you you probably get both types of people. Yeah. I've seen people in my office who have a really hard time understanding or accepting that what they experienced in childhood and adolescence is affecting the way they are in their relationship right now. Mm-hmm. And so it's just, you know, kind of the opposite end of the spectrum from Sapolsky's idea. So the idea of trauma, the trauma certainly changes the amygdala and the frontal cortex. And he uses two words, the expression and the regulation of genes when they turn on and when they're active. When I learned this, uh, I probably first heard of epigenetics because it's fairly recent, maybe five to 10 years ago. It's really hard to wrap your head around this. Yes. But epigenetics is about the regulation of genes, when they turn off and when they're active. And the thing that's hard to wrap my head around is it can have generational effects. Mm -hmm. And so here's the example he gives. So a woman who is pregnant and is highly stressed that changes in the expression of the stress hormones in the unborn baby Mm -hmm. because, you know, their systems are connected. That unborn baby is born, grows to adulthood. That unborn baby, if a female gets pregnant and then passes on that increase in the stress hormone that came. So the child, it's almost like it skips a generation. And this was the piece that was a little bit hard for me to understand. But so the expression goes from the grandmother and then the grandchild has that same expression of that stress hormone. So it's how the experience we have shapes the endocrine system. Now, this is an example that maybe a lot of people are going to be familiar with. There's a pretty strong correlation between people who are obese mm-hmm. and uh, childhood trauma. 
Okay. And so you have to ask, well, what's going on there? And certainly there are sometimes psychological issues, but there are actual physiological issues that have changed. And so the trauma has in some way changed the endocrine system that makes it very hard to not gain weight. It's almost impossible for some people to do that. And, and there's almost always a childhood trauma component to that. And then the final example he gives is a specific gene. And I don't, he names it in this presentation. I don't know what it is. He names a specific gene that an example of adult who was abused as a child may become a very angry adult, but only if the trauma experience activates a certain gene. Yes. So for instance, two people, one has the gene, one does not, they both experience similar childhood trauma. Mm -hmm. And so in one, that gene is activated. So it becomes an angry adult, the other doesn't. Mm -hmm. They had the same trauma, but not anger. And so you could also have two people who have that gene one is abused and the gene becomes activated, becomes an angry adult. The other one has the same gene, doesn't have the abuse, does not become the angry adult. Mm -hmm. And so I think the takeaway from this particular section is that genes do influence our behavior. I think we've talked about it before. I think what we've come to in psychology is really that acceptance that there's always the two parts, the nature and the nurture. Mm -hmm. So the experience and the genetic, but that experience can change the, the the expression of the genes so that then affects our life later as adults. And I think that's really important to understand. Yeah, absolutely. And so he at one point says genes don't decide anything environment does. Which environment I, does, yeah. Which I think is true for when it comes to emotions and the way we express ourselves. But I mean, because like, correct me if I'm wrong here, but there are some things that are predetermined, like your eye color. And well, yeah, I think he's making a general statement as far as okay. like behavior, but certainly, yeah, like if you had a different experience, it doesn't change your eye color. Right, right. That. Yeah. And, and certainly we have certain genes that in a, in a way determine how tall we are and things like that. Right. And so I would be curious when it comes to uh, dominant hand, oh, what, if, what yeah. effect environment has on being left or right-handed? Well, I can tell you from my experience that there were, when I was growing up, so I'm left-handed. So and right. when I was growing up, my parents talked about this, that for some reason they thought you ought to try and change it. Yes. And I don't have any recollection as to what they did, but they actively tried to change my handedness. And I think what they have found out is that when you do that, it causes other issues to arise. And so it's not a good thing to do. No. Um, but, you know, for some reason, that was the thinking at the time, you know, 65 years ago is you shouldn't be left handed. Right. And I wonder how much of it is environmental. And I have no idea how handedness forms, but both Curtis and I are left-handed mm -hmm. and we've got three kids and our daughters are definitely right-handed, Yeah. but our son, we think might be, but it's not like we've done, he might be left-handed, but it's not like we've done anything different. And so, you know, again, is it environment or is it genetics, you know, which as far is as handedness? Yeah, I think it's probably genetics. I yeah, mean, that's just my guess. It'd be—I okay. don't know the answer for sure, but I'm guessing genetics. Well, because it's because it's incredibly recessive. My grandmother is left-handed on my dad's side. She had nine kids; none of them are left-handed, and of her forty-something biological grandkids, only two of us are left-handed. Yeah. 
So yeah, I don't know how it's expressed. Yeah. But you could probably find it. You could probably do a Google search and probably because um, I, I think they probably understand how that's passed yeah. on. But here's what happened with me. I became more ambidextrous. Oh. And so growing up, I would throw left-handed, but I would mm -hmm. bat right-handed and it yeah. threw everyone off. And I would golf, I would golf right-handed as well. I wonder if there's a higher percentage of left-handedness in cultures who read and write. Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. From right to left. Yeah. I mean, because anyone who's left-handed understands the struggle of mm -hmm. writing, right? <laughs> right. I mean, particularly blurry, on... The blurring of ink usually, right? Yes. Or trying to write on a chalkboard or a dry yeah. erase board, like, you know... Yeah. Anyways, yeah, okay. Good thought, but you could probably find the answer to that. Probably. So anyway, genes, childhood and genes and trauma, as you said, has a profound negative effect on uh, children as they become adults. Yes. The last area that I want to cover is, so he talks about it in general terms of ancestors. He yes. goes all the way back, you know, 1,000 years, 10,000 years. And he talks about ecosystems. And that, you know, 10,000 years ago, the ecosystem that our ancestors lived in changed the way the cultures developed. Mm -hmm. And so that we know is true. So he gives the example, desert dwellers are more likely to create monotheistic religions, yes. whereas rainforest dwellers are more likely to create polytheistic religions. And so in some ways, I think, so a polytheistic religion, uh, boy, I should have looked this up, but I think Hinduism is one of those where there are multiple gods. Mm -hmm. So you grow up in that culture, which is thousands and thousands of years old, right? but present day, in what ways does that change the way you behave, the way you think first mm -hmm. and the way you behave to grow up in a, a polytheistic religion compared to a monotheistic religion? And I think there are differences. He doesn't go into them. I think he's just saying that his main point there is to say, this has an effect on you in a way that you really, we really don't understand, but we ought to be aware of. Yes. So that's really all I wanted to say about the ancestors is because I think it's really hard to go that far back and yeah. have this idea that, okay, this is affecting my behavior. But I think that in some ways, it like I, the way I would frame it is that I think it has more to do with how we think and how we conceptualize our world. And then that in turn affects our behavior. Well, and I think too, it's the trickle down effect, right? I mean, because... Mm -hmm. Some 10,000 years ago, what some of our ancestors were doing is going to trickle down just a little bit, right? The same right. way epigenetics is passed on just right. a little bit and a little bit, but it's going to become so diluted yeah. that I think it's very minuscule. So if you consider a, a potential behavior, then here are the parts that uh, he thinks has an effect. So you would have to say, okay, for instance, I'm going to do a behavior what level of activity is going on in my amygdala? What's the sensory input information? Is there a bad smell? Is someone watching me? What are my hormone levels like at that point? Higher low testosterone, higher low oxytocin. What did I have trauma as a child? What was my amygdala affected in some way? What's my frontal cortex like? So the maturation is of the frontal cortex as an adolescent. How does that affect my behavior now? 
what might have been the prenatal stress hormones of my mother and how does that affect me now? And then, you know, as far as our ancestors, what was the cultural context in which you were raised? You know, the passive, mm-hmm. pacifist, aggressive, polytheistic, monotheistic. So I think that we're going to go on to free will right now, but I think it's really important to realize there are these other factors that influence our behavior and we ought to be aware of. Right. And I agree. And I also think that my main takeaway with this, which is something I already kind of believe, but my main takeaway from this video that I do agree with is don't judge someone's behavior too harshly because you don't know their backstory. You don't, you don't know, know the whole story. Yeah. Yes. And there is always two sides to every story, which is something I have learned and very much advocated for is, you know, don't just assume because something bad happens that only one person is is at fault. And I think this is true most often with divorce. Mm-hmm. It is, I mean, I don't know that I have ever heard of, or it's very, very rare for it to be all one person's fault. Obviously there are cases of abuse, right? Where you know, it is that one person's fault, but almost always in cases of divorce, it's both people who have issues. Right. And I, I say that all the time. And I think if you exclude d- domestic violence, then I, I think that it's there are always two people in the marriage, in the relationship, yes. and you they each have a part in yep. what's going on. But I think it's true. Why, you know, one of the things I love about my job, and I, re- I really do love what I do, but I get to hear people's stories. Mm-hmm. And just because of the nature of what I do, often they're, you know, difficult stories or stories of trauma and difficulties that these people have been through. And I am always amazed at the, how well people really do function mm-hmm. when they've had such terrible terrible experiences as children and adolescents. And I try and convey that to the people that I see is that, yes, it it causes these problems and I try and help them see it's about the brain. Mm -hmm. And so let's work on changing the brain. But isn't it amazing where you've gotten to? Yes. Based on where you came from. Okay. So now on to the really good part. And (laughs) that is... The whole premise of this is why do we actually have free will? So I'm going to start with mine. I think it's because we have a prefrontal cortex. In a nutshell, that's that's why. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I think that as human beings, we get to make decisions. Now, I think that there are certain things that are out of our control. For example, you know, we don't always get to control the testosterone levels in our body. We don't get to control our hormones all the time. But as we age, our prefrontal cortex, it develops more and more and more, and we get to make decisions and we can train ourselves not to be impulsive, right? We, we learn that, to I, think. Yeah. I mean, you and I are pretty much on the same page with this. I'll explain this idea. Of, he believes that we don't have free will. And he only gets to that, I think, in the Q, at least in this particular presentation in the Q&A section. Yes. So it's not like in the body of the presentation he talks about it. I think someone asks a question. But if listeners are interested in his ideas, he has a pretty big presence on YouTube is where I find him. And there are other presentations that will they'll be able to key into because he talks about human behavior and he uses the terms that are best and are worst. And so in other presentations, 
he tends to go into more detail about the lack of free will. And so his idea is because of all these influences that we have talked about in this episode and the previous episode, he believes that we really don't have free will, that we're governed by all these other factors. Now, what I know about him from from other things I've listened to, he calls himself a depressive, which means he sees himself as being depressed most of the time. Okay. And so I've heard him say that in presentations. And one of the things that I've said in previous episodes is the common theme I see in depression is this sense that either all or part of your life is out of your control. So to mm-hmm. me, it kind of makes sense. Yeah. So kind of at the heart of it, he's a depressive and he believes that essentially his life is out of his control. It makes sense to me the way he's talking about it. I don't believe it, though. I really think that the idea is to take into account these other factors. Yes. And that be aware of them, be aware of the influence of hormones on our behavior. And I'm not saying this to point out you know, women and their hormone issues, but it's one of the the hormone issues that is that people really uh, acknowledge and can see, and that's during a, a woman's monthly cycle. Mm-hmm. Now, for some for some women, it's it's not an issue at all, but for some reason, for for some women, that hormonal shift is really profound. It was and, for me. Yeah, and it causes changes in behavior. And yes. most often, you know, they're angry, they're short, they're and women will say that. And I think uh, the other one is uh, during menopause. So mm-hmm. people who, women who are perimenopausal and their hormones are shifting, it's really awful. One, it causes, uh, like for instance, Lindy had a lot of hot flashes and had them for years mm-hmm. and uh, it disrupts your sleep. And so lack of sleep, how does that affect your behavior? So these effects, these physiological effects, they're real. Yes. But I don't think it takes away our free will either. Yeah, I, I agree. And it can certainly make it harder. I mean, a great example is postpartum depression. That right. is directly yeah. linked to yeah. a hormonal change in a woman's body after she gives birth. But I don't know. I mean, it doesn't mean that she has to just suffer and just deal with it, right? She can make choices. She can seek therapy. She can do things to try to improve her mood. She can acknowledge it. And so one thing that I kept coming back to is when he talked about the amygdala being triggered in the us versus them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for example, your amygdala is automatically triggered when you see someone of a different race. So just because your amygdala is triggered doesn't mean you're going to act aggressively towards someone. You have the ability to temper that initial reaction and just smile instead of like treat them like an alien, right? See, I think that's a really good example because, you know, listeners, you can, like if you're walking down the street and you see someone of a different race and that's triggered, I think you're right that then the prefrontal cortex it kicks in and you can actually override that reaction. So it's not that you might not, you, you'll probably have that initial reaction, but again, that doesn't mean you'll act on it, that, exactly. that there's some sort of behavior that then results from that particular reaction. So I agree. I think he's wrong that we don't have free will. I I think that the important point is be aware of yeah. these other influences. I think it's a mistake uh, for, I talked previously in this episode about people, I've run into people who really believe that they have total control and like their childhood that, and none of their, their previous experiences has any effect on how they are right now in their life or in relationships. And I don't believe that. 
Mm-hmm. I, th- I think that, you know, our previous experiences and relationships have a tremendous effect. We just need to be aware of it. That's yeah. All. Yeah, absolutely. So we do have free will. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I agree. And But our behavior is influenced. And, yeah. you know, I think that is for both the good and the bad, because these hormones and these influences is what makes us pro-social. And that's a very positive thing, right. you know, cause it makes us want to care and it, it bonds us together and that's, and it forms relationships and relationships are what make us happy. Right. You know, going back to the idea of the prefrontal cortex, I think you, it's the same as seeing someone of a different race. I think you can have that initial reaction of the S and M, but I think you can override it. And you can be pro-social to a group that you might consider a them group. And I I think we see that all the time. Yeah. I mean, even as a teenager, I went to church with a girl who I played volleyball against at a different school. Mm -hmm. And I certainly didn't view her as a them when I was at church. Right. So, I mean, we have the ability to make decisions. So, yeah. Okay. All right. So next week, we're going to get into something a little bit different than what we normally talk about. So it's polyamory is what we're going to talk about. And so it stems from this video I came across. It's called me, my wife and our live in lovers. It could be me, my husband and our live in lovers. But anyways, the point is, is so it's a couple who lives with a non-married couple. So a couple who originally was just dating And they all coexist and they're all kind of in a relationship together. And so it's an interesting lifestyle. And I think what makes it really interesting is the married couple has kids. So there are kids involved. And so we're going to discuss kind of how that works and kind of what the pros are, maybe what some of the cons can be. And I think it's just good to talk about alternative lifestyles and Mm -hmm. to, you know, be more understanding of people's choices and, you know, the agency that they exercise. Yeah. And, you know, that's kind of a theme that keeps popping up in our, in our episodes is what we need to do is accept other people's lifestyles. We don't need to agree with it, but you know, there are many ways to be happy in this world. And uh, it, what we're really talking about is maybe changing the S and the them, you know, how we think about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because, you know, most people know that I'm a, I'm fairly religious. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and I'm this, not. <laughs> exactly. And I'm this is the opposite. <laughs> yeah. And, and this is certainly not a lifestyle that I would ever choose to live, but right. you know, I think it's my job mm-hmm. to not ostracize and judge people. So right. that's right. a little bit what this is about is just yeah. trying to bring to light that 